Good morning and uh, welcome to Faith Covenant Church. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And before we dig into our sermon for today, we just want to mention to you about the brand new sermon series that we are starting next week. It is called Like a Good Neighbor. And I know all of you automatically just said State Farm is here or something like that. Uh, But the series is called Like a Good Neighbor, and it is going to be discussing the hows, what's, when's, why's of loving your neighbor. I am extremely excited about this series. It's going to be practical and informative. We hope that you can make it starting next week. And one way that you can help us out for this series is simply by going online to 4FCC.org slash invite and downloading the graphics for this sermon series. Uh, and then posting them on your social media profile. So you can set it as, uh, if you're really cool, like the um, profile picture, or you can put your banner picture, um, or you can always slide onto our church's Facebook page or Instagram. Can you share things on Instagram? I don't know. But you can share on social media to help people know um, that our sermon series is starting next week, Like a Good Neighbor. It's going to be pretty cool, I think. Well, today, uh, as makes sense, is the last week of a series we've been doing called Goodbye Religion. And in this series, we've been talking about how we often have this tendency to fall into certain ways of trying to relate to God that simply aren't what God desires from us. Our hope is that in this series, we can say goodbye to those ineffective and unhealthy ways of relating to God, and then say yes to the ways that God actually does want us to relate to Him. So this series is Goodbye Religion. Now, for the sake of clarity, when I say religion, what I'm talking about is this. Religion is interactions that we have with God that are based on principles that God doesn't mean for us to interact with Him through. And this can happen in a ton of different ways, but some of the more common principles that we've been talking about in this series are this. Uh, The first week, Pastor Mike He talked about saying goodbye to sin and shame. And we saw that God is, in fact, a God who loves simply because that's who he is. He is a loving God. And because of Jesus, our sin and our shame no longer define our relationship with God. And then two weeks ago, we had Pastor Don Earl from Life Church Auburn Hills. And he came in and talked about saying goodbye to select groups. With God, there are no in-groups and out-groups. Jesus came to save everyone and make us into one people. And so we have access to God no matter your social, ethnic, economic, educational, or sexual past. So goodbye to select groups. And then last week, Pastor Mike talked about the principle of saying goodbye to sacred spaces, which was a really cool sermon. Mike talked about how the church is a great tool for the mission of God, but this is not a sacred place. God does not dwell in this building. He dwells in us. So we said goodbye to sacred spaces, and this week we're saying goodbye to suffocating lists. You're supposed to say woohoo! <laughs> but before we do that, let's, let's pray. God, thanks for another chance to come together, to grow in our relationship with each other, to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that today we can um, hear and learn things that help us want to follow you more, and follow you closer in practicality. Lord, we do pray for today is Mother's Day. Um, We're thankful for mothers. 
Uh, but we also understand this is a, a complex time in many people's lives with a myriad of emotions. And so, Lord, our prayer right now is that you just make your presence and peace known to everyone. And um, Lord, we do want to pray for those who are, are sick. We know there are some families dealing with horrible spring colds and a little bit of COVID and, and some more serious issues too. And so our prayer is that you help recovery and healing happen quickly so people can get back up and running and back to life as usual. Pray this in your name. Amen. So like I said, today we're saying goodbye to suffocating lists. I like Mike asked, who are my list makers out there? Go ahead and raise your hand. Oh, we've got quite a few of you. You're probably like, yep, I got a grocery list. I've got a to-do list. I've got a list of house projects that covers the next 10 years and includes the approximate cost of each project and probably when I need to get it done. You're the list makers. Now, here's the real question. Who's married to a list maker? Anybody? Yes, there we go. So my wife, she's not in here right now, but she can relate with those of you who are married to list makers. Uh, A few weeks ago when she told me that she was pregnant, and yes, if you haven't heard, we are pregnant. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. See how I snuck that in there? Mm -hmm. Well, seriously, after, uh, after I found out, the next day she had just worked like a super long day at work, and she came home, and I had made a list of all of the projects that I felt like we need to get done before this baby comes. Yeah, and I listed it by priority, and I included all of the general tasks that each project would need and how much I expected it to cost. And yes, she was annoyed when I forced her to go over the entire list with me. (laughs) I am guessing that most of you have at least one suffocating list in your life. Um, maybe it's your list of house projects. Maybe for you, it's that list of things you got to get done before your kids start school this fall. Uh, maybe you're sitting here right now working on your grocery list. Like, I don't really care what James is saying. I just need to get some groceries because my teenager eats so much. Those may all be suffocating lists in your life. Uh, But they're actually not the kind of suffocating list that we're talking about today. Because for today's purpose, when I say suffocating list, this is what I'm talking about. A suffocating list is a list that we create that we use to determine whether or not we or others are right with God. I want to say that one more time just so it's extremely clear. A suffocating list is a list that we create to help us determine whether or not we or others are right with God. I want to give you an illustration to help this make a little bit more sense. Uh, I don't know how many of you are avid Twitter users. I don't necessarily recommend it for the sake of your emotional health. But if you are, you have probably seen one of the many deconversion stories that people try and share in 280 character spurts. They've got hashtags like hashtag deconversion story or hashtag ex-evangelical. And if you're not up on your hashtags, or as we used to call them back in the day, the pound signs, <laughs> these, yep, these Twitter threads are where people share about why they left what might be considered theologically conservative Protestantism and made the move to some form of secular humanism. And one of the themes that you end up seeing in these deconversion stories, it sounds a lot like this. People say, I grew up going to church. In church, I was taught, whether intentionally or not, that what really mattered was following the right rules. Because in our church, 
We didn't smoke. We didn't drink. We didn't have sex or talk about sex before marriage. We didn't listen to secular music, watch R-rated movies, wear spaghetti strap shirts, get our belly buttons pierced. And if you did any of these things, you were obviously being influenced by the devil and you had turned your back on Jesus and you are most likely going to get left behind when the rapture comes. <laughs> now that's kind of an extreme caricature. Uh, some of you are thinking, actually, not really. That's what my childhood felt like. We weren't even allowed to eat Lucky Charms because Lucky Charms are associated with the Greek goddess of luck, Lady Fortuna. And if you eat them and you're saying, mm, these are so good, you're worshiping the Lady of Luck. And that's idolatry. But for those of you who grew up eating Lucky Charms, we do this in a lot less extreme ways as well. Because list making and following rules, it's actually one of humanity's go-to methods for trying to be right with God. We create a list or we're taught a list and we use it to determine whether or not we are up and up with whatever our conception of, of God is. Now, here's a little quiz to help you determine if you struggle with suffocating lists. Have you ever wondered if you were still saved because your church attendance is not as good as you think it should be? If you said yes to that, you might be struggling with a suffocating list. Have you ever felt like God loves you less because you don't spend enough time reading your Bible and praying? If so, you might be struggling with a suffocating list. Have you ever felt like less of a Christian because your knowledge of the Bible or Christian doctrine just is not very good? If so, you might be struggling with a suffocating list. Have you ever said something like this? God would never let me into heaven because of all the bad things I've said, or because I screwed my kids up so much, or because of all those hurtful words that I spoke to other people. These are all examples of things that end up on a suffocating list. The idea being that if you want to be right with God, you need to do all of these things on the list. Go to church enough, read your Bible enough, pray a certain amount, know a ton about doctrine, parent your kids a certain way, not say any bad words, give enough money. And while you might not state those lists explicitly. We know they're there because when we fail to do something on our list, we start to feel insecure about where we stand with God. Is this sounding familiar to anyone? These are suffocating lists. It's when we create a list that we use to determine whether or not we or others are right with God. Now, these lists aren't, aren't new. They were around when Jesus existed uh, in person as well. We see in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1, this story. It says, At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Now, when I first read this story, I thought, Did Jesus just steal? Did he and his disciples walk into someone's field that doesn't belong to them, take some grain for themselves and eat it? But that's actually not the issue here. The issue is not stealing because it was custom in the Jewish world for travelers to be allowed to pick grain from fields as long as they didn't take too much. The issue here is actually that they did this 
on the Sabbath. Check out this next verse. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. This is where the suffocating lists come into play. You see, the Pharisees, they had taken a commandment that God had given to them and made a suffocating list about what exactly it means to keep the Sabbath. They had this command that God had given Moses. God had said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. God had basically said, hey, part of the lifestyle I want my people to live includes taking a day where they don't do any work. This is a a great instruction from God. But if we're honest, there's a little bit of wiggle room in this, isn't there? I mean, if I'm not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, what does that mean that I'm not supposed to do? Am I not supposed to do anything that contributes to my income? Are we talking about doing anything that's physically demanding? Are we talking about things that I hate doing, like chores or laundry or cooking? Or am I not allowed to do a hobby? Is that considered work? What is actually considered work and what isn't? Well, the Jewish people asked this question and they did a thing that makes a lot of sense. Over time, they created a list of exactly what was and what wasn't considered work. And they ended up creating a man-made set of rules that were meant to help keep them from violating this Sabbath command. Now, they did this with all sorts of the commandments of God, but for this instance, the Sabbath, they had determined that there were um, 39 things that were considered work. And just for all of you list people out there, I am going to list all 39 of them. (laughs) This is from the Mishnah Shabbat chapter 7. It says, The primary labors, labors are 40 less one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking, shearing wool, bleaching, hackling, dyeing, spinning, stretching the threads, the making of two meshes, weaving two threads, dividing two threads, tying, knotting, and untying, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, capturing a deer, slaughtering or flaying, salting it, curing its hide, scraping it of hair, cutting it up writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, (laughs) building, pulling down, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, and carrying out from one domain to another. It is very specific. But we understand why these rules were made, don't we? These Jewish leaders had taken something that was a command from God, and they added to it out of a good desire for clarity. But instead of creating clarity, they ended up creating a suffocating list of man-made rules that were used to determine whether or not people were living right before God. We actually see a little bit later in this passage that the Pharisees tried to use these rules, these lists of Sabbath prohibitions, as a way to trap Jesus and prove that he wasn't the Son of God. In their mind, if Jesus violated something on the list of Sabbath prohibitions— then he obviously wasn't the man that he claimed to be because after all, people who are right with God keep these rules. You see how that works? They created a list of do's and don'ts that they were using to determine a person standing before God. It's a suffocating list. 
we're in a totally different context that, than they were, but we still do the exact same thing, both for ourselves and for others. We take commands and ideals that we find in Scripture, and we end up doing two things to them. First, we fill in the gray areas with rules and specifications that are meant to aid us in keeping that command. For example, the Apostle Paul gave this instruction. He said, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. I mean, there is some, some gray area there. What does it mean to get drunk? Now this week, while doing my research, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I asked our faith community nurse, Mary Ellen, this question. I said, Mary Ellen, as a medical professional, what does it mean to get drunk? And she said, James, is there something we need to talk about here? <laughs> but seriously, this is a great example. If you ask some Christians what it means to get drunk, they'll say something like, oh, when Paul talks about being drunk, he means drinking to excess. You drink so much that you uh, get silly, you slur, you stumble, you can't function normally. But if you ask some other Christians, they might say, actually, there's a line between slightly buzzed and not and when you cross that line, that's considered being drunk. But then if you ask even another Christian, they might say, no, when Paul says drunk, he's talking about anything that inhibits normal function of your faculties. And alcohol inhibits function, therefore, no alcohol should be permitted for Christ's followers. Based on our own backgrounds, our understandings of Scripture, our life experiences, we fill in these gray areas with our own rules and understandings. And I need to say, this is actually a good thing. We all have to do this process for ourselves. But then, and this is the second part, and this is where it becomes an issue for us, we use those new rules as a way to determine whether we or others are right with God. So say, for example, that I ascribe to the view that no alcohol is allowed for Christians. To drink is to become drunk. Now, as long as I steer clear of booze, I get to tick off my list that rule and feel secure with God. And most likely, I then look at other Christians and use that as a way to determine whether they're right with God. Oh, that Pastor Mike... I saw his car at the bar last night. Can he even call himself a Christian? We just again. Oh my Sorry, that was really funny. <laughs> we do this with everything, though. We do this with drinking. We do this with sex. We do this with parenting. How often we attend church or read our Bibles or pray. How much money we give. How much brainless media we consume on our phones. We create rules often in a desire to help us attain some ideal or command, but then we use these rules as the plumb line to determine whether we or others are right with God. We say, well, if they were Christians, then they really wouldn't do this. Or if that person is really a Christian, then they would do that. What starts is trying to figure out how to best live according to God's ways can easily become a suffocating list. And here's why doing this is suffocating rather than life-giving. First, if, if I use a list of behaviors and actions as the litmus test for whether or not I'm good with God, 
it leaves us wondering if we're actually good enough. If the standard is a list of do's and don'ts, then I am always left asking, did I really do enough of this? And did I really avoid doing that enough? And then every time I violate one of those rules, I end up feeling insecure about my relationship with God. Maybe I didn't help enough orphans. Maybe I didn't love my neighbor enough. Maybe I drank a little too much or wasn't quite the parent that I should be. Am I really still good with God? It's kind of like if you've ever taken a class that you didn't really do that well in. So you sit around waiting for all of the final exams to get graded, hoping that the curve is low enough that you will squeak by. You sit around anxious wondering, am I really going to make it here? This is how it can be with God if we base our standing with him on a list of do's and don'ts. And because of this, because of basing our standing on a, a list of do's and don'ts, we can actually sour our hearts toward God. I love how Tim Keller talks about this. He says there are typically two responses when we try and base our righteousness on a set of rules. The first is self-discovery. It starts by us trying to follow these sets of rules, but naturally we end up not doing a very good job because after all we are human. So instead of trying harder, we say something like, you know what, these rules, they seem arbitrary. And no matter how hard I try, I just can't do it. So if these rules are sucking the life out of me, I just, I don't want any part of them. So we abandon the pathway of religion and we pursue a path of self-discovery, of discovering our true selves. This is the theme that we see in a lot of the deconversion stories that I mentioned. We say things like, the rules, they don't make any sense. They don't help me live a good life. They made me feel repressed and empty. So I broke free of the repression of the church and of God. And now I am finally figuring out who I truly am. The suffocating list tends to sour our heart toward God. But suffocating lists, they also tend to sour our hearts towards other people as well. And Tim Keller, he also talks about this. He says, opposite of the people who abandon the lists are those who take the lists and base their identity on them. He calls this the pathway of moral conformity. And the problem with this is actually that the better I become at following my set of rules, the easier it is for me to look down on other people who don't do as good of a job as I do. And instead of viewing people with love and compassion, we look at other people, judge them on the list, and end up souring our hearts towards them. I'm pretty sure either you've experienced this for yourself or have at least encountered someone who has this type of attitude. The rules, if our basis is following them, tend to sour our hearts towards others. Also, suffocating lists set us up for future faith failure. Do you like that alliteration there? The real preacher James coming out, future faith failure. Think about it. If, all, if I do all that I can to follow the rules and I end up having a hard or difficult life, how do I then end up feeling about God? We say things like, but God, I followed all the rules. I gave all this money. I served week after week after week. 
in the sixth grade Sunday school classroom. Do you know how weird sixth graders are, God? And how do you treat me after I did all of this for you? You give me cancer? You let my family fall apart? You let me lose my job? When we base our standing with God on lists, it becomes a transactional relationship. If I do X, Y, and Z, then God has to accept me. So if I try with all my might to do X, Y, and Z, and in return, I get suffering, pain, and hardship, it leaves us saying, God, how could you? I did what you asked. Now I deserve for you to treat me well. And if you don't, either you are cruel or you simply don't exist. It sets us up for future faith failure. And then finally, when we live by suffocating lists, it's just simply not God's way for us. Check out this passage from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. I love this passage. Did you catch what Paul's saying here, though? He's saying none of us have the ability to follow the rules well enough to make ourselves right with God. If the standard we have to meet is perfectly following the rules, all of us are in trouble. He says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, because we're broken human beings, we simply cannot follow the rules well enough to make us right with God. But get this, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And then this is where Paul ties it all together. He says, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. What Paul's saying is this, Jesus did for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. That through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, he perfectly lived out the law of God. Not only that, but he paid any penalty that we might have incurred from not following that law. So that now, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, when God looks at us, instead of seeing people who struggle to do the right thing, he sees Jesus in us. Jesus, who perfectly satisfied the requirement of the law. 
That's why the point that Paul makes in verse 1 is so powerful. He says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, what makes us right with God is not our ability to follow a list of rules. What makes us right with God is our faith in Jesus. So that now, when we think about all of the rules on our suffocating list, instead of feeling condemnation or insecurity, we get to see that Jesus has saved us. We say to God, you know, God, I didn't always treat my kids the way that I should. And he says, I know, but you've got Jesus. But God, I said so many bad things. And he says back, I know, but you have Jesus. What about all of those times, God, that I acted in greed instead of generosity? He says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But didn't you hear me say all those mean things to my wife, God? He says, I did. But you have Jesus. We get to say goodbye to the horrible suffocation of being beholden to our ability to follow the rules because Jesus has freed us from suffocating lists. Your standing with God is not defined by how well you follow the rules. It is defined by one thing. Do you have Jesus? Now, I need to make something clear here. Uh, the fact that the just requirement of the law has been fully satisfied and that in Jesus there is now no condemnation for us, uh, that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. If you're sitting there like, I'm about to call my divorce lawyer and find a drug dealer when I get home, that's not what this means at all. And actually, Paul was very, very aware that people were thinking this way. That's why in Romans chapter 6, he wrote this. He said, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument to evil, to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. There is so much in this passage. You should probably go home and read it like 10 times just to digest it a little bit more. But the question Paul is interacting with is this. He says, hey, since I have Jesus, and there's no condemnation with Jesus, if I have Jesus, I'm right with God, doesn't that mean that I get to live however I want? And I love how Paul always answers his own questions. To me, it's hilarious. He says back to himself, of course not. And his general idea is that when we come to Jesus, God doesn't just forgive us of our past sins. He actually gives us new life. Our old life that was defined by things like sin and shame and select groups and sacred spaces and suffocating lists, it died. And we have been given a new life. 
shouldn't we want to embrace that new life as much as we can by living how God instructs? There is still a way that God wants us to live. The difference is, now that I'm in Christ, I'm no longer defined by my performance in that new life. I am now free to live into God's ways without the constant fear and nagging issues that come when I try to define my standing based on a set of rules or lists. Now, I want to teach you just a quick blip of theology to really help this make sense. So, all my theology dorks, I now give you permission to take out your pens and notepads and get really excited. And for the rest of you who are like, oh, theology, I think this can be really helpful in understanding our walk with God. So, I do encourage you to, to think about this a little bit. In the theology world, there's a difference between the concept of union and communion when it comes to our relationship with God. That word union, it's used to describe how we're saved in Jesus. Because when I place my faith in Christ, I am united to Jesus. It's the idea that now because Jesus is in me, what's true for Jesus is true for me. So Jesus lived a righteous life. Now that Christ is in me, his righteousness is counted as mine. And when Jesus died for my sins, because Christ is in me, his death on the cross counts for my sins. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, his resurrection is mine, because Christ is in me. Paul summarizes these ideas um, in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see that? Crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When I place my faith in Jesus, I am united to him. And because of that union, I am made right with God. That is it. It's completed. It's finished. It is something that Jesus accomplishes for me, accomplished by Jesus for us. But part of what we're saved into is this hope that we get to live life with the amazing God of the universe and that we get to walk with him and experience him. And this is the idea of communion with God. Communion is the day-to-day walking with God that I get to experience now that I'm united to Christ. And this is where this really matters. There's a degree to which my experience of this communion is impacted by how much I try to live into the type of life that God wants for me. Union with Christ, it's finished when we place our faith in Jesus. But communion with God, it's something that requires us trying to live into the ways of God. It's like any other relationship. I do have to try and live connected to experience that communion which means we try and live into God's ways. Union with Christ means that I'm free from the suffocating lists that drive me away from God or sour my heart towards others or keep me feeling insecure. But communion with God, it's the idea that I now get to live with God, so I try to live into his ways and experience him as much as possible. In short, because of Jesus, we get to say goodbye to suffocating lists, and we get to say yes to the freedom 
of communion with God. Now, as I wrap up today, I want to give you a chance, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, to be freed from these suffocating lists and freed to be able to live into the new life that God is giving you, I want you just to take a few minutes and pray this prayer with me so that you can receive that for yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross and rising from the dead. I know I cannot be saved by performing well enough. I need you to save me. I confess that I haven't always lived for you. I place my faith in you. Help me from this day forward to live out your ways because they're good and because I want to walk with you. Amen.